Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Mona Charon has been deep in conservative politics for decades, as a columnist, as a speechwriter, as a strategist. Today, she is among the most vocal conservatives who consider Donald Trump a dire threat to the United States. She's the policy editor of The Bulwark and host of the podcast, Beg to Differ. And Mona Charon joins me now to help understand what happened at the first debate in the Republican presidential primary, which was held last week in Milwaukee. Mona, thanks for coming back on Notes from America. Oh, it's a pleasure, Kai. It's been a while since we've spoken. It has been a minute. It must be election season again. (laughs) It must be, yeah. Uh, And listeners, we'd love to hear from any conservative voters out there who are not voting for Donald Trump. Did you watch the debate? What did you think? And what are you thinking about this primary in general right now? If we've got any conservative voters listening who are not voting for Donald Trump— Where is your head on the back end of this debate? And Mona, the day after the debate, you wrote a short essay in The Bulwark with your immediate reaction, and it posed a broader question than who won or lost. Um, You asked, what do we need to do to control, to limit the impact that demagogues are having on our politics? So before we talk about particular candidates, why was that your overall question watching this debate? Um, Because I felt that the format itself encourages exactly all of the wrong tendencies. Um, Because you have all those people on the stage and because, and, and each one, so it's a two hour debate. There are a few breaks. There were audio intros and so on. So maximum, the most that any could expect to get of airtime was 12 minutes Mm -hmm. and probably less than that. Right. And so, Built into that knowledge is the idea that you have to have a breakthrough moment, and the best way to have a breakthrough moment is to attack somebody. Um, So that's one incentive that's built in. The other thing that the rules encourage is if you are personally named by another candidate, you get 30 seconds. And so this encourages sniping back and forth and the, you know, kind of gladiatorial nature of these contests, Mm -hmm. which has absolutely nothing to do with whether somebody is going to be a good president or not. Further, the huge studio audience, in this case, it was an arena audience, um, only aggravates the problem because you have the cheers and the jeers and the boos from the audience taking up time and um, as I said in the piece, at one point, one of the moderators, Brett Baer, had to turn around in his chair and chastise the members of the audience for their booing and cheering and saying, 
Now, come on now, if you keep doing this, you know, it's only going to take away from the time that I know you want to hear about I, for us to get to the issues you really <laughs> these care These important about. policy conversations yeah, we've all come for. Yeah. By the way, the yeah, important policy conversations, including UFOs, which is one of the things they ask them about. So uh, <clears throat> permit me to uh, have a spit take on that one. But <laughs> um, but the. Uh, but the audience does encourage, again, the gladiatorial nature of these displays. Finally, how does it enable demagogues? Well, if you are a slick, fast-talking, dishonest simplifier, a la Vivek Ramaswamy, um, <clears throat> you can, in that format, there's no time really to have a a back and forth. There's very little time for the moderators to say, for example, well, wait a minute, Mr. Ramaswamy, you, you just said you want to eliminate the Department of Education and abolish the teachers unions. How would you do that with the authority of the presidency? <laughs> You know, and, and but there was nothing along those lines. And so if we had a different format, if we had, say, you know, probably eight is too many. So you divide it up. You have four people per night. And for 10 minutes, um, you have a Q&A with some interlocutor asking questions with follow ups, no studio audience. Um and, uh, you know, I mean, other people who are more versed in television might have better ideas than mine, but it seems that something has to be uh, substituted for um, these absurd cattle calls that, that we've been witnessing and are un unfortunately going to be subjected to again. It's Notes from America. We'll be right back. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Mona Charon, we, we will uh, get back to Vivek Ramaswamy because I know you are not a fan, but he is uh, really widely declared the, quote, winner um, of, of of that debate last week. I want to take a caller who I think has something to say about Vivek, uh, Alex in Brooklyn, New York. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Yeah, I, I felt like Vivek Ramaswamy won that debate, um, uh, and he came across as the most anti-establishment candidate over there. He was being hit on the most, which kind of tells you that the candidates there think he's the most relevant. And I felt like Ron DeSantis underperformed, not because he did terribly, but because uh, he's number two after Trump in terms in the polls. And his polls before this debate were going down, you know, slowly. And the Vex polls numbers were going up. And people in the media uh, were saying that Ron DeSantis was going to have a really strong night. And that would, you know, help him get back up in the polls. And so I think since he didn't do that well um, and, 
he did really bad because he had to do exceptionally well in order to bring himself back up and to still be number two after Trump. And I, and I, I think Vivek Ramaswamy um, is playing it very well in, as being a candidate, and he's going to be number two, except for, for if he what about ends for up you, having Alex? the dirt with... For me, I think I think Vivek is, is better off. I feel like he's an original person. I know there are issues about him being anti-Israel, and a lot of Republicans are upset about his ties with George Soros, but I'd like to have more clarity on those issues before I say that I'm, you know, I'm not with him. I'd like to know more about him before I say I am with him. But I, I like the fact that he's anti-establishment. I like the fact that he, he, you know, has questions that a lot of people are afraid to ask, like for okay. instance, the situation thank- in Ukraine. Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna leave it there, Alex. But thank you very much. Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, Mona, um, there are many things to discuss from from the debate. Um, he, uh, the fresh face part of it that Alex is talking about, um, several others on the stage, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, tried to sort of come at him as a rookie. Um, and um, I think that was a compliment <laughs> um, in, in, in the Republican primary. Talk, talk Tell me more about um, your take of what he of, of what you saw of Vivek Ramaswamy on uh, well, on Wednesday night. So, Kai, you make a you make an excellent point in that um, being perceived as not a politician is one of the strongest recommendations for a lot of Republicans now. Um, so, having no experience, you know, my my friend Rick Brookheiser said many decades ago, the presidency is not an entry level post. Um, that's, uh, that's been blown to smithereens by Donald Trump. So, um, and, and the Republican voters, and I think the previous caller was a, was a good example. They really are attracted to the idea that somebody is an outsider and not part of the establishment. And especially if they attack the establishment. Um, look, it has been the case in the Republican party and not just, it's not, it's so much broader than Trump. It's, it's the, um, outlets on the right. It's the talk radio hosts and Fox News and, uh, all the other organs of right wing opinion that encourage, um, a belief, uh, that the Republican party has betrayed its voters, that Republican office holders are corrupt and no better, very little de- better than Democrats. And, uh, that therefore somebody who comes along and says they're anti-establishment has a tremendous appeal. And it's something that has been brewing now for, for many, many decades. It, it, it I remember noticing in the, in the 2000s, early aughts, let's say, that when you would tune into talk radio, the, the conservative radio hosts were not railing about Democrats. They were railing about Republicans. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, then you saw it with Ted Cruz, who sort of encouraged this idea that if the Republicans just had the courage of their own convictions, that they could sort of force Obama to eliminate Obamacare, you know, his signature program. They didn't have the votes, and Ted Cruz did succeed in leading a government shutdown, but he still didn't eliminate Obamacare, but he made it. His his narrative was, well, it's only because they didn't have enough courage. Mm-hmm. And so that's the narrative, and it's a very destructive, um, very, very uh, unfortunate idea that has taken hold. 
And it has encouraged a kind of burn it all down, uh, mentality in, in a, a significant part of the Republican base. And so somebody like Nikki Haley, uh, who I thought, you know, I've had my problems with Nikki Haley because I think she's a wonderfully talented governor. I thought she handled the awful shooting, um, racist shooting in the state of South mm-hmm. Carolina when she was governor. I thought she handled that really well, where she explained to her state why it was necessary to remove the Confederate flag. It was a, it was a really inspiring moment, actually, of leadership. And then in the Trump era, she, you know, she, at first she said she couldn't possibly support him. Then she did support him. Then she worked for him. Then she said it was, anyway, she went back and forth on Trump about five different times. So I've had my trouble with her. But I have to say, the other night in that debate, she was a really impressive figure on that stage. What was she presenting new? Because I have to say, I I mean, I had even like very, I I have at least one very liberal colleague uh, Mm -hmm. texting me saying, oh, I'm, I'm cheering for Nikki Haley right now. Um, (laughs) What, what, what was, was there something new that Nikki Haley was doing that night? Yeah, Um, there was, there was. So one of the, one of the first things that she did when they asked a question about the debt was she said, you know, and of course, all the other people on the stage said, you know, it's all the fault of Biden and the Democrats. And she said, well, hold on a minute. I mean, uh, Trump added six trillion dollars to the national debt, you know, or I forget the exact figure now. But in any event, you know, that yeah. huge number. And she said, it's it's Republicans who also contributed to this debt. We're all in this up to our eyeballs. And she said, and we have to be honest about that. So that was the first thing I thought. Bravo. Um, also when it came to Ukraine, uh, and to, uh, you know, the, uh, absurd positions that Ramaswamy has put forward, like tell the, you know, that we will, um, we'll, we'll tell Putin that, uh, if he ends his alliance with the Chinese, he can have Ukraine, by the way, as if Ukraine is ours to give away. Uh, uh, and also, you know, the notion that this would be any sort of agreement that you could rely on Putin to keep. (laughs) It was, it's just ridiculous. And so uh, Nikki Haley really schooled him and she did it in a way where she kept her dignity, um, but she was very forceful. Uh, She didn't raise her voice and get shrill, which is always important, especially for a woman. Um, And she really stood him down, which, again, as a woman on a stage just full of men, and I don't tend to like this male, female, you know, comparison stuff very much. Um, I've never been a woman power type myself. But at that moment, I I wanted to say good for you, Haley, because I know that's not easy. Let me ask you about gender, though, because Nikki Haley has actively brought up gender in this race. She's she's which is uh, unexpected turn. Um, on a Republican primary stage where the, um, the, the leading political fight is around controlling the, the so-called woke left and its identity politics. So what, um, I'm not sure what my question is other than like, where, where that, that was surprising to me. Is it surprising to you that she's bringing that up in her campaign? And what do you think about how it's going to play in today's Republican party? Look, Here's what I think. Um, I think she is making a conscious pitch as to think of her as a general election matchup against Biden and don't think of her vis-a-vis Trump. 
And because there is still a portion of the Republican Party that wants to see somebody besides Trump. And there are several reasons for that. Some portion of the Republican Party, we're not sure how many, it's about 25%, really don't like him, emphatically do not like him. And then there's another, let's say, 25% that are open to being persuaded not to vote for him. And so, you know, it's, well, we really don't know exactly what the numbers are, but she's trying to say, look, if you feel that Trump, for whatever reason, maybe unjustifiably from the point of view of Republican voters, but has too much baggage, look to me because I'm younger I'm female, which appeals to a lot of suburban voters. I have foreign policy experience. I was a governor and I'm not an anti-Trump person, right? I worked for Trump. Right. And so I'm your solution. And by the way, I think they're, you know, as DeSantis's uh, standing in the polls has been sinking over the last couple of months, um, the donor class has been eyeing the exits and yeah. thinking because they were behind DeSantis. Who, who, do, who do they turn to now? Well, who do they turn to yeah, now? And absolutely. I think after the debate the other night, they have lost confidence in Tim Scott at, because he was going to be the next one up. Yeah, he was going to be yeah. the next alternative. And he did not do well at that debate. And she did. And it's possible that the donors at least are going to give her a very hard new look. I don't know. Um, about the voters. You know, he, she did seem to improve her standing with the voters, but let's face it, barring some sort of meteor crashing into the earth, uh, Trump is going to be the nominee. Well, so that's my next question. Does any of this matter? We're, 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 we're wrapping up. We've got about a minute left um, to, to try to understand this. But what, if anything, matters about what happened on this stage, given where we stand uh, with the Republican Party and Donald Trump? So there were some really nice moments that I'm glad Fox viewers in particular were able to watch. One of them was when Mike Pence said, the president asked me to put himself over the Constitution and I I refused. They don't get a lot of that on Fox. So that was good to hear him say that. There were other really good moments, some brought to you by uh, Haley, some by Christie and others. However, The most crushing moment was when the panel was asked for a show of hands about how many of the candidates on stage would still support Donald Trump, even if he were a convicted felon in November of 2024, and six of the eight people on stage raised their hands. And that was (laughs) emblematic of what a terrible shell of its former self the Republican Party has become, utterly without principles, utterly uh, occult. And that is very sad. We got to leave it there. Mona Charon is policy editor for The Bulwark, host of Beg to Differ podcast, veteran conservative columnist. Mona, thanks for coming back on the show. And thanks to everybody who called in. You can keep talking to us at notesfromamerica.org. Just look for the green record button and leave us a voicemail. Don't forget to include your name and where you're calling from. Notes from America is a production to WNYC Studios. A special thanks to WABE for partnering with us on tonight's show. I'm Kai Wright, and I will talk to you next Sunday.